Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a double homicide that occurred in 2016. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. We saw SWAT teams here. We also saw a law enforcement chopper. Moments ago, I was informed by the Seattle Police Department that there was a shooting with multiple victims at Airport Way. State lawmakers are now talking about building a fence to address crime in the Seattle homeless camp known as the jungle. Well, he was the only one who identified anyone. So that came up as like, wow, why only him? Hey, boss. You know a guy named Lucky that hangs around here? This is episode two of season two, Out of Luck. I'm your host, David Payne. People were killed and three wounded Tuesday night in a shooting near a homeless shooting in the jungle may be connected to a drug debt. Three teenage brothers were arrested and these 17, 16 and the youngest just 13 years old. Back in the caves, there's another dead body that's been found in the jungle. Were the cops here all morning? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then they found, you know, I see. Yeah. yeah. Do you know why they thought it was suspicious or not? That's what they don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it was, uh... Well, they called homicide detectives. That's why I wondered if Yeah, homicide. So maybe they did their investigation. Okay. Who knows? To be honest, I'm not quite sure why we're here today, looking for evidence on another homicide. It's been two and a half years since the killings we're looking into, but such is the pull of the jungle when death is involved. But these are his I think we checked this address, 77 South Washington Street. See if this is the guy. We should talk about what we found. That document. All right, so right next to the place where the body was found is a document from the Department of Social Health and Services. And it says, Dear Estelle... The address on the letter, 77 South Washington Street, had some significance I couldn't quite place. But this is the official paperwork. It was received just three weeks ago at the Belltown CSO, and it was right next to where the body was found. The paperwork is really Our efforts to find a connection between this jungle homicide and the one two years prior were ultimately unfruitful. The only commonality seemed to be the location of the killing. Oh, and one other thing. That address on the paperwork near the body? Turns out it was also the last known address for James Tafalusia. 
Although we would later learn that 77 South Washington Street was just a mail drop for people with no fixed address, this new body was another reminder of just how deadly the jungle can be and how careful we would need to be on our journeys down into it. And it was clear to us that we were on our own if we were going to find out what really happened when five to eight men rolled up on bikes with guns and started shooting up the encampment three years ago, except maybe for one guy. After season one of this podcast, we connected with a Seattle crime reporter who used to work at the Seattle PI, 32-year-old Levi Polkinen. So, Levi... Hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you don't sound excited. To I know. I need to. Let's first make sure I get the right way to pronounce your last name. Cool. My last name is Polkinen. It's three syllables. It's Polkinen. It should and be it's going to pop a lot. It should be a hotel. The, <laughs> Pol- the Polkinen. It, it sounds like a town outside of Poughkeepsie. Yeah. Yeah, where we pick our feet. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh... We meet Levi at the historic Washington Athletic Club. We're keeping our shoes on. We ask him to fill us in on the shooting. Paint a picture for us, if you will, of January 26, 2016. What was going on? There was just this massive police response happening. We started listening to scanner traffic. I just remember it was a confused situation, and it took a long time for us to get solid information out of it. Mm -hmm. My first thought was that it was a drug thing. That's usually what it is if it's in the jungle, not to diminish people's uh, loss of life related to anything, but that was my first thought. But I remember asking the police chief whether or not this was a gunfight, whether it was an ambush, you know, whether it was one shooter, many shooters. We just knew it was a shooters on the loose, that kind of thing. Was it just a confusing situation? Do you remember where you were? Um, I think I was at the off... No, I'm trying to remember. Do you guys remember what day of the week that was? Was it, Don't was it a weekend? Was it I Friday? Like it was a weekend, but... Levi can be forgiven some haziness about the details of that evening three years ago, as it was indeed a chaotic and foggy night, both literally and figuratively. It's quiet now, Eric and Mary, but when we first arrived, this area was swarming with ATF agents, homicide detectives, and SWAT team members. And they've already recovered. And as the locust of first responders and media descended on the jungle that night, even basic details about the two homicide victims were muddled in the ensuing game of telephone. We have an update regarding the victims involved. Up until this point, I've been reporting one man and one woman killed. Police have changed that and now say the two confirmed dead were both men. Three others were... That information from police was demonstrably wrong. There were two people who were killed that night, but only one was a man, James Tram. The other was a 46-year-old woman, Janine Brooks. But that night, as details emerged... Police did seem certain about two things. First, that the shooting was not random. And second, that there were two persons of interest. As helicopters circled overhead just minutes after rushing victims to the hospital, Police Chief Kathleen O'Toole and her team took to the microphones to reassure the public that all was under control. We do have um, at least two persons of interest. We believe this was a targeted incident. Uh, We have no reason to believe anyone else is in danger at this point, but we have sent officers from our... uh, The police were responding that night, and in the days that followed, 
to the positive identification of one of the shooters by one of the victims. Hence the, we don't believe this event was random commentary. That victim was 47-year-old Tracy Bauer, and she identified the shooter as someone she had known for many years, a 28-year-old Samoan male nicknamed Juice. His younger brother was known as Baby Juice, and when police on the scene heard Tracy say that Juice shot her, they put out an APB for the two Juices in their database. Five days later, when the teenage brothers were arrested, a casual listener could be excused for assuming that they were the two persons of interest. But that was most certainly not the case. By that point, police had decided that Juice and or his brother Baby Juice had not done the shooting, and that instead, the Ta'afalusia brothers had murdered the people in the homeless encampment because their mother was owed $500 by the drug dealer who ran it. Prosecutors say 17-year-old James Tahafalusia and his 16-year-old brother Jerome were behind those guns. Police say the two teens and their 13-year-old brother confronted a low-level drug dealer to avenge a drug debt owed to their mother. Using a 45 caliber hand- In preliminary court documents, the police allege that the brothers, on their mother's birthday, went to recover the $500 she was owed by drug dealer Fat Wynn. Prosecutors didn't say whether the mother ordered the boys to do this or if it was simply an unsolicited birthday gift. But for a while, they implied the former. Here's the DA, King County Prosecutor Dan Satterberg, when the boys were arrested. We allege that these young men walked up the overgrown hillside adjacent to I-5, an area known as the jungle, with the purpose of robbing a small-time drug dealer. But it appears that these murders and assaults were committed in order to rob the victims of heroin with a street value of about $100 plus several hundred dollars in cash. This investigation is continuing on all aspects, including whether the mother of these young men is herself criminally liable. It's another rainy Seattle day, and we're on our way to a jack-in-the-box to see if we can find the mother of the two teenagers on trial for the jungle murders. The boy's mother is known to hang out here, and while she has never been charged in this case, the police were concerned about her culpability in this murder from the start. Take whole game, right? Well, now you're fucking telling me. We're looking for a white SUV suburban. Police documents would not paint a very pretty picture of the mother's lifestyle. She's lived the past few years with her three sons in a combination of motel rooms, tents, and a 1993 Chevy suburban. There are a lot of RVs parked down here. With tents next to them, which is interesting. A lot of people living out of their cars. A lot of people. The area we are in here, in Southside Seattle, is chock a block with assorted rundown vehicles that serve as people's homes. And I get it. It's hard to put yourself in the shoes of people who have parked their cars outside a jack in the box to live. 
But try to imagine for just one second what it's like to try to raise three young boys in this environment with no toilets or running water. And then imagine being one of those kids at 9, 10, 11 years old. What chance at a normal life did they really have? Do you have any other description other than... I've got license plates. Okay. Ooh, look here. What? Ooh. Long tags. But right away. Sure white suburban. That? I'm positive about that. Oh, that bullshit does, on that. That's that long looks... tags. The tags are AXP. Could it be possible she has new tags? That looked like a late model Could it be right there. Possible? And the windows possible? were tinted. I'm going to go down, flip around, and then we'll get the plates on the next go around. Go by slowly so I can look in the window. Yeah, they're so tinted there. dark. I don't think you're going to be able to see much in there. Oh, they're Keep in there. there. Yeah. Now what do you do? There's two people in there. There's someone in the driver's seat and someone in the passenger side. What do you want to do? Stand by. That is it, dude. That is so it. What do you think of we tap on the window? Hey. Hey, girl. Get to here and wait till they go into the jack-in-the-box. Stand by. I'm parking mm-hmm. on the no-parking zone. Oh. As one does when you leave. I mean, it is kind of odd to walk up to the window of a blacked-out car yeah. and just knock on it. No, it's blacked out, David. That's just, no. If the windows weren't blacked out, you can't even see. I guess the question is, we came this way to find her. We found her. Right. What do we do next? Well, it's, well, let's talk about how this would go down. Hey, girl. Hey, girl, hey. I wanted to talk to you. You know I'm down with just about anything, but uh, that's... I don't like the fact that I can't see inside the car. I'm all about the egress. Yeah, you're probably right. Let's get out of here. Did you take a picture of the plate? Yeah. What do we do with that? Let's see if Levi's got a source that can run a plate for us. All right, well, since we're not going to roll up on her right now. It would be another six months before we would see the mother again down in court. And while Levi wouldn't be any help in running the license plate, he would be able to help us understand how the mother's alleged involvement in the case first came up. It wasn't until after the arrests that they started talking about this drug debt that these boys were supposed to be collecting for their mom's birthday. Let's just dissect the motive for a second. Under what theory does it work that the drug dealer owes the drug addict $500. I mean, it was, it's an attractive narrative, I I guess. It doesn't make a ton of sense, but a lot of things don't make sense that are true. (laughs) You like that? Ain't that the truth? Yeah. Ain't that the truth? So. I've been scratching my head about that one. No, I mean, now that you're saying it out loud, it makes no sense at all. Now I'm regretting not being more critical at the time. To be fair to Levi, the reality is that a story like this is just like our day-to-day relationship with the homeless. We don't look too closely because we really don't want to. In fact, it would take the context of a trial some two and a half years later 
to provide the window to scrutinize the evidence against the brothers in the light of day. All rise. King County Judge Cheryl Carey would run the case from the bench. The state would be represented by two senior DAs, Mary Barbosa and Steve Hershowitz, who were intimately involved in the case from the start, including the drafting of critical arrest and search warrants. One of those warrants involved the wiring of confidential informants. And if you want to understand how we got from two persons of interest named Juice to the arrest and indictment of three brothers named Toff and Lucia, you have to start there. The the other weird thing about the jungle is it's just rotten with people who have worked with police before. Like, there are a lot of snitches running around up there. And it's my strong impression that after that shooting, the vice detectives and the DEA task force people and everyone started shaking their, sh- their snitches and saying, okay, what just happened? And Levi's strong impression would be accurate. That's exactly what happened. So I remember hearing the call come out and initial suspect description was Samoan males. That's Detective John Huber of the Seattle Police Gang Unit. Huber was kind of the go-to guy for running informants in the city. And in early January 2016, three weeks before the jungle shooting, Huber would get a call from Seattle's West Precinct. They had an individual in custody and... He wanted to talk to a detective. And what did you know? This referral would be to a 30-year-old Samoan male named Lucky, who had just been arrested for drug dealing near the jungle, his fourth arrest in 12 months. Now, is there anything about Lucky that you found interesting when you spoke with him? Uh, yes. He uh, is homeless and was very familiar with the uh, homeless community in Seattle. And he was also Samoan. He was also unlucky. With his latest arrest, Lucky was facing real jail time, possibly more than 10 years. Another conviction would also trigger a 10-year renewal of his sex offender status. So when he was released on bail in early January 2016, Lucky agreed to help out Detective Huber where he could in exchange for possible leniency on his cases. Little did he know he would actually be called upon to assist in a murder investigation. And so, uh, knowing that Lucky was a Samoan male uh, and was familiar with the area of the jungle, I called him to see if he knew anything about it. Now, you had testified earlier that around... When Detective Huber called Lucky just two hours after the shooting, Lucky told him he didn't know anything, but that he would ask around. Unfortunately, what Huber didn't know at that time when he asked Lucky to investigate was that Lucky was their primary suspect's brother-in-law. Here's defense attorney Dan Norman describing how that bizarre coincidence played out. And Detective Huber said to him, a shooting happened in the jungle. I am looking for a guy named Juice. And what did Lucky say? Lucky doesn't say... That's my brother-in-law, a guy I grew up with, a guy I call my brother, a guy who I know his brother, I know his mother, I know where his family lives, I know where his tent is, nothing. As defense counsel describes it, 
You can almost envision the wheels turning in Lucky's head when he gets that first call from Detective Huber out of the blue. Play dumb. Don't say anything that's going to get your brother-in-law in trouble, because your wife is going to be pissed if you do. So Lucky stalls, tells Huber he'll go check things out in the jungle, and he reports back within an hour that he's hearing some Vietnamese guys were good for the shooting. Unimpressed with the tip, Huber asks Lucky to dig further, and the very next day, not 18 hours after the shooting, Lucky calls Huber again. And this time, it's to tell him he solved the crime. Somebody somewhere will return right after this break. When Lucky called Detective Huber the day after the shooting to tell him he had cracked the highest profile case in Seattle wide open, he brought more than simple good tidings. He brought a corroborating witness and evidence. Lucky told Detective Huber that he and his cousin Reno had secured phone recordings of a confession by the shooter that they were willing to bring downtown. Uh, okay, boys. Uh, everybody meet everybody? Yes, this guy. Introduce myself. He's small. <laughs> well, we That's all a new one. New new I'm honorary. He's a hybrid. <laughs> He's a hybrid. That's lead detective Jim Cooper, his partner Paul Takamoto, and Detective Huber in a holding room at the police station, where the two guests at the party are Lucky and his cousin Reno. The story they've come to tell the detectives, the one that completely pivots the case, has many layers and will produce many questions. But the best way to parse it is to play the relevant excerpts for you with some running commentary. For clarity, we will also tighten some of the exchanges where we can do so without changing the integrity, meaning, or import. So, how much do you guys know about what happened last night? Well, we know a lot. Okay. We got it all recorded. We got it all recorded in the phone and everything. I did your job. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I went to, uh, got on my little investigation. Because this guy right here pushed me, man. Yeah, I reached out to him last night to say, you know. That's lucky talking about his three-week-old friend, Detective Huber, saying he came forward because this guy right here, Detective Huber, pushed him to. So, tell me what happens today. Uh, well, today I was sleeping. Right. Um, long story short, um, somebody called my phone, and I, I knew the voice. It was James. I knew the voice. It was James. As in James Toffa Lucia the older of the two teenage brothers on trial in Kent. I knew the voice, it was James. So he started talking to my wife and he asked, immediately asked for Juice. And my wife told him, no, Juice is not here. And then boom, he asked for me, is Lucky there? So he passed me the phone and I told him, what's up James, everything good? He said, no. I want to stop you for a second. So you're there, your phone goes off, your wife answers it. Yep. And it's his cat James. Yep, James, my nephew. Okay. Um, blood nephew? Yeah, that's my blood, that's my nephew, my blood nephew. From my mom's side. Your mom's side? That's my nephew, my blood nephew. Now I'm just guessing, but it's probably an educated guess, that Detective Cooper's a little off balance as he begins to take in what James, Lucky's blood nephew, might have told him over the phone about the shooting the previous day in the jungle. Hey man, can you find, is there any way you can get all the juice? And I told him why. He said, "Cause everybody's in everybody's town is framing him from what he from from what happened last night." I said, "What? That cannot be, cause 
Juice is in federal way. The last time I found out he was in federal way, how can he, because my sister-in-law said he just got off the phone with him two days ago that he was in federal way. Then I, uh, I asked him, who did, the, who, who, do you know who did the stuff? And then he said, he said that, uh, man, I forgot that slang word about me. You know, that he said something, something me, like, you know, I said, man, why did you do that for? And he said, no, don't say nothing on the phone. Some of this tape is hard to understand, but the import must have been immediately obvious to Cooper. Not 24 hours after this multiple homicide, while police are looking for a Samoan male named Juice, in walks Juice's brother-in-law to tell them Juice doesn't hang in the jungle anymore and the police should be looking at someone else for the shooting, the informant's nephew, James. Man, now Juice is in trouble? What are you going to do now, man? He, all, he, you know what he told me? He said, all you got to do is get all the juice, take, turn himself in, and, t- and tell him that he never do nothing. That's, all, that's what he told me on the phone. I said, no, 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 no. And now you can almost see the wheels in Cooper's mind turning. Cooper's obviously having his own troubles figuring out a story that makes sense from Lucky that might be capable of corroboration. Okay, so I want to go back and break this down a little. I mean, it, did he say, you know, words out that uh, Juice did yeah, shooting yeah. in the jungle? Yeah, that's what he said. Okay. And it can't be, because I know where Juice was at that time when, because Juice, Juice is at, every time he'll go to the town, he'll let us know. He'll let all my brothers know. Even, I asked him about it. He said, man, I don't know. Lucky's laying it on thick about Juice's whereabouts. So Cooper does his best to try to pin him down to see if he can corroborate anything he's saying by the known but not public facts. When that's not fruitful, Cooper focuses on the so-called confession by James that Lucky is there to deliver. But when James was talking to you on the phone, he's saying, I did. You did it. Okay. I got it on the recorder and everything. We'll get to that in a minute. Yep. Dick Tracy. Yep. <laughs> so... How did Reno get involved in all this? Was it Reno at the house? When yeah, it was with me. How did you guys record it? On the phone. My brother's phone. Okay. It's on, it's on my brother's phone. Does he have a newer flip phone? Or After ascertaining the circumstances of the recording, Cooper leaves the room and gets cousin Reno to play it on his phone for the cameras. And be warned, the language is offensive. This is Detective Cooper, Seattle Police Homicide Assault. It's approximately... Uh, 1949 hours. It's uh, January 27, 2016. This is regarding case number 16-31003. Uh, and I have with me Reno, and he's going to play a recording for me. Uh, whenever you're ready. What happened? Y'all niggas uh, robbed them niggas? What? what? See, y'all niggas robbed them niggas? <laughs> These niggas is crazy. What, them niggas was, uh, what, were they dope dealers or what? Anything, what you call it? I'll call you when I'm on my way to Tukula. 12. That it? Okay. It is now 
1951 hours, I am ending. Homicide detectives hear a lot of BS from a lot of people. And I suspect that up until this point, Detective Cooper's chummy play along probably had a high air of suspicion behind it. But this phone call, if it was indeed from James, was damning. The caller does say, I smoked him. And the context does appear to be the shooting the previous night. But there is something off about the call that I can't put my finger on right now. What's more, I'm struggling with Lucky and Reno's motivation to come forward. And I said, man, I got to do this. I got to make this right, man, because I know who did it, man. Man, what if I never met you, man? If I never met you that night, I think God was... Hey. Yeah. God, it's good karma, man. That's right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help them out, too. Like, save their lives, because somebody else will come and take it. Yeah, you got that right. But a close listen to the interview reveals a few more impure motives. We already know the reason Lucky's connected with Huber in the first place is to try to get some leniency on his four pending drug cases. But he also lets police know he's there for the money, too. And Lucky also makes unexplored allusions to family dynamics that might have played a role in his pointing the finger at nephew James. Because if you think about it, that could have been me, you know, because we had beef a long time ago. It's me and his dad, you know, his dad and the son, James. So that could have been me, me and all my brothers, you know. Out of nowhere, just come and pop us out of nowhere. Is James in the game? But perhaps the most concerning motivation for coming forward is his goal to protect his brother-in-law and good friend Juice. And his rationale for believing Juice wasn't involved, that Juice was in Federal Way two days prior to the shooting, well, that strains credulity. Cooper had to be feeling the same way. There was definitely some smoke here, but he needed to find out if there was fire. After he separately interviews Reno, he comes back to Lucky with a plan. Yo, Lucky. Hey. So, just finished talking to your brother. Um, so, I believe you guys, but it's like Reno was saying, you know, yeah, you guys like have done most of my job for me. Yep. Now, if this was me, if I knew James, I'd probably want to get something a little bit more recording on something a little better. Better? Yeah. Are you get that for you, man? I mean, I basically asked you or your brother there to wear what we call wire or something like I that. I know what you're talking about. Okay. I can do it. I ain't scared. Trust me, <laughs> just say when. Okay. Sit tight here. Let yep. me uh, handle some business. Yep. I gotta talk to some people about The business that Detective Cooper would need to handle would be huddling with prosecutors Barbosa and Hershowitz to prepare search warrants to wire up Lucky and Reno. Three days later, the two informants would be dropped off near Safeco Field with hidden body camps, where they would meet up with the boys at their tented encampment. And while Cooper was certainly play-acting when he fluffed up the two cooperators, saying they were doing his job for him, it is not an overstatement to say that the video they subsequently captured did the job for prosecutors. And when the case finally wound its way to trial, D.A. Barbosa was stuck with the stinking mess that started this whole operation. Lucky's self-interested motivations. So she did what she could with it in front of the jury, first acknowledging the problem. Did Lucky do this to work off his drug cases? Well, in fact, his drug cases were reduced and resolved and dismissed in a way that kept him out of prison and didn't extend 
his sex offender registration. Did he do this to clear Juice's name? His brother-in-law, who he believed and truly believes, did not commit this crime. Did he do this in part to save the defendants, his nephews, lives from retaliation from fat's people for what they did with fat? And then Barbosa asked the jury to look the other way. So Lucky and Reno worked with the police. It's unheard of in their circles. The reality is you're never going to know exactly why Lucky and Reno decided to do this. You're not mind readers. But the other reality is it does not matter. And it doesn't matter because their entire conversation with the defendants was recorded and is available for you to see and hear and assess for yourselves. Whether she was right about that, that it should not matter to the jury why Lucky was coming forward, pointing the finger at his nephews and not his brother-in-law. Barbosa knew this. She had made a deal to dance with the devil for one simple reason. You and I couldn't have gone into this encampment and expected the defendants to talk to us. Detective Cooper couldn't have gone into this encampment and expected the defendants to talk to him. An undercover officer couldn't have gone in there and had this conversation with the defendants. The thing was, we could. Next time on Somebody Somewhere. Oh, that'll out the door and... Careful there. Ooh, what's in this room? I need a drink. Oh, my God. I sold all the black and clear, and I had to sell at least 10 ounces. The FBI is calling it the Tran and Vu Drug Trafficking Organization, and tonight it's been busted. I think where we have to begin is that we have to be careful not to put her in any more danger. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Feel it in the dark. Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media in association with Warner Media. This podcast is created, written, and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Dayton Cole and Pat Kicklighter at Resonate Recordings. Editorial guidance provided by Mitch Gelman and legal services provided by Stuart Pearson. A Foolish Game is written and performed by Snowflake. If you like this podcast, the best thing you can do to support us is to write a brief review on iTunes and share us on social media. You'd be surprised how these reviews can make or break an independent podcast like ours. Thank you for listening.